is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Today I will be reading uh, two short stories by Judith Merrill, The Lonely and Woman's Work is Never Done. I will be pairing this with avant-garde and electronic music from 1963, the year the first story was published. In the background, we are listening to Mekarotwari uh, by Wadlazimr Kantanatsky. So, a little bit about our author today. Uh, Judith Merrill was the pen name for Josephine Juliette Grossman. She was a member of the New York group of Futurans during and after World War II. She was hired as the editor of, as an editor of Bantam Books in 1947 and published her first short story in Astounding Science Fiction, 1948. In 1950 through, um, in 19, yeah, in 1950 through Bantam, she started editing her prestigious science fiction anthologies. From 1956 to 1968, she heavily influenced the field with her year's best in anthologies. She also took on leadership roles in organizing many of the conventions at the time. She campaigned to use the term speculative fiction instead of science fiction, but I'll talk more about her content after today's stories. I will be reading The Lonely by Judith Merrill, which was first published in Worlds of Tomorrow, October 1963. If we practice our space speech and listen real hard, is this the sort of thing we're going to hear? The Lonely by Judith Merrill Two, the Honorable Naturajan Roy Hennessy, Chairman, Committee on Intercultural Relations, Solar Council, Eros From Dr. Shlomo Muna, Senior Anthropologist Project Ozma 12, Pluto Station. Date, 
October 9th, 92. Transmission via tight beam scrambled sent 1306 hours TST received 1947 hours TST. Dear Nat, herewith a much condensed, heavily annotated, and top secret coded transcript of a program we just picked up. The official title is GU Pound 79, and the content pretty well confirms some of our earlier assumptions about the whole series. As this one concerns us directly, and we have enough background information, including specific dates, to get a much more complete and stylistic translation than before. I'd say the hypothesis that these messages represent a Galactic University lecture series broadcast from somewhere near Galactic Center through some medium, a damn sight faster than light, now seems very reasonable. This one seems to come from Altar, which would date transmission from there only a few years after some incidents described in the script. Some of the material also indicates probable nature of original format, and I find it uncomfortable. Also, re-raises question of whether Altar, Arcturus, Castor, etc. relay stations are aimed at us although the content makes that doubtful. Full transcript, film, etc. will go through channels as soon as you let me know which channels. This time I'm not pleading for declassification. I think of some sponsor of reactions, and frankly, I wonder if it shouldn't be limited to... SC Intercult Chairman and Ozma Senior Anthropoids. And sometimes I wonder about the Churly Reading Shlomo. Transcript GU Pound 79, Condensed Version, edited by SM, October 9th, 92, TC. In parentheses. NRH. All material in parens is in my words summarizing, commenting, and or describing visual material where indicated. Straight text is verbatim, though cut as indicated. Times, measurements, etc. have been translated from standard galactic or Aldebaran local to Terran standard. And bear in mind that words like perceive are often very roughly translated for SG concepts more inclusive than our language provides for dash dash SM open with distant shot of space serve crew visiting woman of earth statue on Aldebaran 4 close up of reverent faces shots of old L1 still in orbit and jump ship trailing it. Repeat first shot, then to lecturer. You may have seen this one before. Sort of electric eel type. Actually makes sparks when he's being funny. Close parens. The image you have just perceived is symbolic in several senses. 
First, the statue was created by Arlimites, the native race of Aldebar IV. Yes, Virginia, there are Aborigines. In an effort to use emotional symbols to bridge the gap in communication between two highly dissimilar species. Second, due to the farcical failure of this original intent, the structure has now been a vitally significant symbol. You perceive the impact. To the other species involved, the Terrans, a newly emerged race from Saul III. Note that you perceived. We must accept the implication that the original broadcast format provides means of projecting emotional content. Finally, this twofold symbol relates in one sense, shooting sparks like mad here, professional humor pretty much the same all over, eh? To the phenomenon of the paradox of absolute universality and infinite variety inherent in symbolism. Next section is a sort of refresher review of earlier lectures. Subject of the whole course appears to be roughly problems of disparate symbolism in interspecies communications. This lecture, don't laugh, is symbols of sexuality. Excerpts from review. The phenomena of symbolism is an integral part of the development of communicating intelligence. Distinctions of biological construction, ecological situation, atmospheric, and other geophysical conditions do, of course, profoundly influence the radically infantile phases of intellectual, emotional, social development in all cultures. But from approximately that point in the linear development of a civilization at which it is likely to make contact with other cultures, that is, from the commencement of cultural maturity, following the typical adolescence outburst of energy in which first contact is generally accomplished. He describes this level at some length in terms of a complex of 1. astrophysical knowledge, 2. control of basic matter-energy conversions, mechanical or sphere, Three, self-awareness of the whole culture and of individuals in it. And four, some sociological phenomenon for which I have no reference. All cultures appear to progress through a known sequence of IES patterns. And despite differences in the rate of development, the composite IES curve for mature culture development of all known species is identical enough to permit reliable predictions for any civilization once located on the curve then progresses to symbolism specific symbols he says vary even more between cultures than language or other means of conscious communication as to wit it is self-evident that the species symbols utilized by, for instance, a septisexual, mechanophilic, areophased species of freely locomotive, discrete individuals will vary greatly from those of, let us say, a myototic, unicellular, intensely sioid communal culture, which makes it all the more striking that... It is specifically in the use of symbols 
the general consciousness of their significance, the degree of sophistication of the popularly recognized symbols, and the use to which they are put by the society as a whole, that we are found our most useful constant so far for purpose of locating a given culture on the curve. Much more here about other aspects of cultural development, some of which are cyclical, some linear, all fascinating but not essential to understanding what follows. Sexuality has until recently been such a rare phenomenon among civilized species that we had casually assumed it to be something of a drawback to the development of intelligence. Such sexual races, as we did know, seem to have developed in spite of their biological peculiarity, but usually not until after the mechanical flair that often seemed to accompany the phenomenon had enabled them to escape their planet of origin for a more favorable environment. I say more favorable because sexuality does seem to develop as an evolutionary compensation where, in some terms untranslatable, some very broad, but generally describing circumstances like extra-dense atmosphere, in which the normal rate of cosmic radiation was reduced to a degree that inhibited mutation and thus evolution. As I said, this seems almost a freaky occurrence, and so it was, and is, here in the heart of the galaxy, but in the more thinly populated spiral arms, the normal rate of radiation is considerably lower. It is only... In the last few centuries that we have begun to contact with any considerable number of species from these sectors, and the incidence of sexuality among these peoples is markedly higher than before. Recently, then, there has been fresh cause to investigate the causes and effects of sexuality, and there has been a comparative wealth of new material to work with. Here he goes into a review of the variety of sexual modes ranging from 2 to 17 sexes within a species and more exotica erotica of means, manners, and more than a mere two-sexed bipeds can readily imagine. Restrain yourself. It's all in the full transcript. But let me for the moment confine myself to the simplest and most common situation involving only two sexes. Recent investigations indicate that there is apparently inevitable psychological effect of combining two essentially distinct subspecies into one genetic unit. Sparks like mad. I perceive that many of you have just experienced the same delight dismay the first researchers felt at recognizing this so obvious and so overlooked parallel with the familiar cases of symbiosis. The Terrans mentioned earlier are in many ways prototypical of sexuality in an intelligent species, and the usual and rather dramatic events on Aldebaran IV have added greatly to our insights in the psychology of sexuality in general. In this culture, dualism is very deep-rooted, affecting every aspect of the IES complex, not just philosophy and engineering, 
but mathematics, for instance, and mystique. This cultural attitude starts with a duality of two-sided symmetry, of body structure. Throughout this discussion, he uses visual material, photos, diagrams, etc. of human bodies, anatomy, physiology, habits, eating, and mating habits, etc., also goes off into some intriguing speculation of the chicken or egg type. Is physical structure influenced by mental attitudes, or is it some inherent tendency of chromosome pattern with pairs of genes from pairs of parents? In this respect, the Terrans are almost perfect prototypes with two pairs of limbs for locomotion and manipulation extending from a central, single abdominal cavity which although contains some single organs as well as some pairs is so symmetrically portioned that the first assumption from an exterior view would be that everything inside was equally mirror imaged actually the main circulatory organ is a single though consisting of two valves the main breathing apparatus is paired the digestive system is a single Although food intake is through an orifice with paired lips and two rows of teeth, in both male and female types, the organ of sexual contact is a single where the gamete producers are pairs. There is a single roundish head set on top of the abdomen containing the primary sensory organs, all of which occur in pairs. Even the brain is paired. I mentioned earlier that it is typical of the sexual races that the flair for physical engineering is rather stronger than the instinct for communication. This was an observed but little understood fact for many centuries. It was not till this phenomenon of dualism and triadism for the three sexed, etc. was studied that the earlier observation was clarified. If you will, consider briefly the various primitive sources of power and transport, you will realize that outside of the psi-based techniques, most of these are involved with principles of symmetry and or equivalence. These concepts are obvious to the two-sexed. On the other hand, the principle of unity underlying all successful communication physical, verbal, sile, or other, and which is also the basis for the application of psi to engineering problems, is for these species in early stages an almost mystical quality. As with most life forms, the reproduction act is, among sexual beings, both physically pleasurable and biologically compulsive, so that it is early equated with religio-mystic sensations. Among sexual species, these attitudes are intensified by the communicative aspects of the act. Cartoon diagrams here, which frankly gave me a bit to think about. We have much to learn yet about the psychology of this phenomenon, but enough has been established to make clear that the concept of unity for these races is initially almost entirely related to the use of their sexuality, and is later extended to other areas, religion and the art of communication at first, with a mystical, indeed often reverent attitude. 
I hardly need to remind you that the tendencies I have been discussing are the primitive and underlying ones. Obviously, at the point of contact, any species must have acquired at least enough sophistication in the field of physics, quanta, unified field theory, and atomic transmutation for a start to have begun to look away from the essentially blind alley of dualistic thinking. But the extent to which these Terrans were still limited by their early developmental pattern is indicated by the almost unbelievable fact that they developed ultra-dimensional transport before discovering any more effective channels of communication than the electromagnet. Thus, their first contact with older civilizations were physical and limited as they still are almost entirely to oral and visual communication. They were actually unable to perceive their very first contact on Aldebaran Four. Shots of Professor Eel in absolute sparkling convulsions go to distant shots of planet and antiquated Earth spaceship in orbit. L1 again. Then suborb launch drops spirals to the surface. Twenty bulky spacesuited figures emerge, not the same as in the opening shots. This looks like actual photographic records of landing, which seems unlikely. Beautiful damn reconstruction, if so. Narration commences with Aldebaran date. I substitute Terran calendar date. We know for the same, and accept gift of one more Rosetta Stone. This time is the year 2053. For more than six decades, this primitive giant of space has ployed its way through the restrictive medium of slow space. Twice before in its travels, the great ship has paused. First, at Procyon, where they found the system both uninhabited and uninviting, and at the time they did not yet know what urgent cause they had to make a landing. Our date for Procyon exploration from L1 log is 2016, which fits. Then, at SAF, two decades later, when they could provide a bare minimum of hospitality, no more than safe footing for their launches in which they would live while they tried to ensure their future survival. But this system's planets offered little hope. One Earth-sized enveloped in horror film-type gases and nasty moistures. One more with dense atmosphere of high acid content. Probe from ships corroded in minutes. They limped on. A half a decade later, they came to a time of decision and determined not to try for the next nearest star system, but for the closest one from which their radio had received signs of intelligent life, Aldebaran. What they had learned between Procyon and Saif was that those of their crew who were born in space were not viable. The ship had been planned to continue if necessary, long beyond the lifespan of the first crew. The Terran planners had ingeniously bypassed their most acute psychosocial problem and staffed the ship with a starting crew of just one sex. Forty females started the journey 
with a supply of sperm from 100 genetically selected males carefully preserved on board. Sex determination in this species is in the male chromosome, and most of the supply had been selected for producing females. The plan was to maintain the ship in transit with a single-sex population and restore the normal balance only at the end of the journey. The Terrans had apparently reached a level of self-awareness that enables them to avoid the worst dangers of their own divisive quality while utilizing the advantages of this special, pun intended for Prof. Eel was sparkling again, ambivalence, their biological peculiarities have, among other things, developed a far greater tolerance in the females for the type of physical constraints and social pressures that were sure to accompany the long, slow voyage. Males, on the other hand, being more aggressive and more responsive to hostile challenges would be needed for colonizing a strange planet. Dissertation on mammals here, which says nothing new, but restates from an outsider's rather admiring viewpoint. With some distinction, should be a textbook classic if we can ever release the thing. That was the plan, but when the first females born on the trip came to maturity and could not conceive, the plan was changed. Three male infants were born to females of the original complement, less than half of whom even then were still alive and of child-bearing age. Well, he tells it effectively, but adds nothing to what we know from the log. Conflicts among the women led to the death of one boy, eventual suicide of another at adolescence. Remaining mature males fail to impregnate known fertile women. Hope of landing while enough fertiles remain to start again, pretty well frustrated at Saif. Decisions to try for first contact made with just five fertiles left and nearest system eight light years off with Aldebaran still farther. Faint, fantastic hope still at landing with just one childbearer left, the matriarch, if you recall. Remember, the reasons for their choice of Aldebaran, you can imagine the reaction when the landing party first lost all radio signals as they descended then could find no trace whatsoever to their senses of habitation. The other planets were scouted to no avail. The signals on the mothership's more powerful radio continued to come from four. One wild hypothesis was followed up by a thorough and fruitless search of the upper atmosphere. The atmosphere was barely adequate to sustain life at the surface. Beam tracing repeatedly located the signal beacon in a mountain of four, which showed to the Terrans no other sign of intelligent life. The only logical conclusion was that they had followed a quote-unquote lighthouse beacon to an empty world. The actual explanation, of course, was in the nature of the Armalites, the natives of Aldebaran Four originating as a social colonizing lichen on a heavy planet with, 
Even at its prime, a barely adequate atmosphere, the Armalites combined smallness of individual size with limited locomotive powers and superior air and water retentative ability. They developed, inevitably, a highly psioid culture as far to one end of the psychophysical scale as the Terrans are to the other. My spelling up there, I think it represents true meaning better than psycho. The constantly thinning choice between physical relocation and a conscious evolutionary measure which this mature psioid race was far better equipped to undertake. The Armalites now exist as a planet-wide diffusion of single-celled entities comprising just one individual and a whole species. Visual stuff here helps establish concept as if you or I just extended the space between cells. It seems especially ironic that the Armalites were not only one of the oldest and most psioid of peoples so that they had virtually all the accumulated knowledge of the galaxy at their disposal, but were also symbiote products. This background might have enabled them to comprehend the Terran mind and the problems confronting the visitors, except for the accidental combination of almost total psi-blindness in the Terrans and the singled-sexed complement of the ship. The visitors could not perceive their hosts. The hosts could find no way to communicate with the visitors. The full complement of the ship eventually came down in launches and lived in them hopelessly while they learned that their viability had indeed been completely lost in space. There was no real effort to return to the ship and continue the voyage. The ranks thinned. Discipline was lost. Death proliferated. Finally, it was only a child's last act of rebelliousness that mitigated the futile of the tragedy. The last child saw the last adult die and saw this immobility as an opportunity to break the most inviolable rules. She went out of the launch into near airlessness that killed her within minutes. But minutes were more than enough. With the much longer time afterwards for examination of the dead brain... It was through the mind of this one child young enough to still be partially free of the rigid mental framework that made adult Terrans so inaccessible to Armalites that the basis was gained for most of the knowledge we now have. Sorrowingly, the Armalites generated an organism to decompose the Terrans and their artifacts, removing all traces of tragedy from the planet's surface. Meanwhile, they studied what they had learned against future needs. The technological ingenuity of these young sexuals will be apparent when I tell you that only four decades after the departure of that ill-fated first ship, they were experimenting with ultra-dimensional travel. Even at the time of the landing on Aldebaran, 
the Ultra Die scouts were already exploring the systems closest to Saul. Eventually, within a decade after the child's death, one of these came to Aldebaran and sighted the still-orbiting mothership. A second landing was clearly imminent. The Arlamites had still devised no way to aid the species to live in safety on their planet, nor did they have any means to communicate adequately with psi negatives whose primary perception were oral and visual, but they did have, from the child's mind, a working knowledge of the strongest emotional symbols the culture knew, and they had long since devised a warning sign they could erect for visual perception. The statue of the woman of Earth was constructed in an incredible brief time through combined efforts of the whole Arlamite consciousness. They had no way to know that the new ship, designed for exploration, not colonizing, and equipped with ultra-die drive, which obviated the long, slow traveling, was crewed entirely by males. Even had they known, they did not yet comprehend the extreme duality of the two-sexed double culture, so they built their warning to the shape of the strongest fear and hate symbols of the female. Shot of a statue held for some time, angle moving slowly, no narration, assuming that emotional projection notion, and I think we must. The timing here is such that I believe they first project what they seem to think a human female would feel looking at it. I tried woman on staff here. They focused more on phallic than female component, but were just as positive in reactions as males. Anyhow, like I said, no narration. What follows though, out of parens, is my own reaction. It seems more a return than a venture. The woman waits, as she has waited, always, to greet her sons, welcome us home. She sits in beauty, in peacefulness, perfect, complete, clean and fresh-colored, new? No, forever, open, welcoming, yet so impervious, warm, untouchable, rather untouched, almost but never forgotten goddess, all-mother, woman of earth, enveloped, enveloping in warmth and peace. One stands back a bit. This is the peace of loving insight, of unquesting womanhood, of great age and undying youth, the peace of the past, of life that is past, of the immortality that nothing mortal can ever achieve except through the frozen impression of living consciousness that we call art. The young men are deeply moved, and they make jokes. All mother? One hears them say sarcastically. Old white goddess, what'd you know? Then they look up and are quiet under the smiling stone eyes. Even the ancient, obscenely placed starship in her lap is not quite absurd, as it will seem in museum models, or tragic 
as the original overhead. Prof. Eel goes on to summarize the conclusion that seem obvious to him. Something is awfully wrong. That's obvious to me. How did they manage to build something so powerful out of total miscomprehension? What are we up against anyhow? And to get back to the matter of channels, what do you think this little story would do to space-serve brass egos? Do you want to hold it top secret for a while? End of transcript. Two, Dr. Shlomo Muna, Senior Anthropologist, Ozma 12, Pluto, from N.R. Hennessy, Solar Council Dome, Eros, date, October 10th, 2092, transmission via tight beam scrambled, sent, 312 hours, received, 10, 27 hours. Dear Shlomo, absolutely, let me see the full package before we release it elsewhere. I've got a few more questions, like, do they know we're receiving it? How do we straighten them out? Or should we? Instinct says yes. Tactics says it's advantageous to be underestimated. Think best you come with package. We'll brain trust it. Meantime, in reply to your bafflement, L-class ships, you should have known, are for Lysistrata. Five of them launched during brief matriarchy at beginning of world government on Terra following final war so sort out your symbols now and good grief where did the other four land NRH This is Books and Blondes with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. That was The Lonely by Judith Merrill, which was first published in Worlds of Tomorrow, October 1963. In the background, we've been listening to mostly French compositions from 1963. We're currently listening to Terre de Feu, by Francois Bernard Manchet. In the, in the background of the story, we heard L'Oiseau Chanteur by Francois Bale, a French Madagascaran, Madagascan composer. We heard Art Thesis by Elaine Radigou and Fordomézy from Faust created in 1962 by Elise Marie Pede, a Danish composer. Uh, Elise was the first Danish electronic music composer. Both Radegu and Pede were pianists and composers that were inspired to study electronic music in the 50s when they heard broadcasts by the founder of music, Concrete Pierre Schaeffer. Um, Elise Meret took courses taught by Pierre Schaeffer, uh, Karl Heinz Stockhausen, and Pierre Boulez. Elaine Radigou became a student of Pierre Schaeffer and worked with Pierre Henri. 
Well, it's been hard to find female electronic music composers who produced music in the 1950s. Quite a few women were pioneers in the 60s and onwards. I'll let you listen more to Terre de Feu by Francois Bernard Monchet and followed by our next story by Judith Merrill.
Next, I will be reading Woman's Work is Never Done by Judith Merrill, which was first published in Future Combined with Science Fiction Stories, March 1951. War or Peace, the gals will have a tough time getting things right. Woman's Work is Never Done by Judith Merrill. Leslie bypassed the buzzer and used the tuned voice key at the front door. She went through the inspection corridor and paused before the last slot, waiting open for her on the swift message of the photocells. She pressed down seven levers in the bank over the group of slots, informing the robot control of her unit code and personal code numbers. The inner door opened automatically, and a single lift mobile rolled up to carry her up to the 34th floor and around two corridors to her space unit. On silent wheels, it rolled away. When she got out in front of her own door and allowed her fingerprints against the hand panel to give her access to the unit. Inside, she dropped her coat and hat on automatic storers and pushed her gloves into the refresher. Her mother waited in the kitchen. Mrs. Castor was a well-built, graceful woman of middle age and moderate disposition. Those who did not call her a perfect mother hesitated to do so only because they thought she might be a bit too strict, a trifle too much of a perfectionist. But her three older daughters had made brilliant successes, and she was determined that Leslie should do likewise. How did it go, darling? Her beautifully modulated voice carried through the speaker tubes as the flashing light in the soundproof wall announced Leslie's approach. It was wonderful, Mom! Leslie charged through the door like any other teenager for centuries back. The only difference was that her feet on the velvet-down linoleum made no more noise than the door did when the photocells caught its impact and eased it into place. The first time I ever went alone and everything came out perfect! She displayed a pinhead size seal stamped on the paper-thin alloy of her learner's permit. Fourteen more and I can get a prelim license, she caroled. All right, calm down, darling, Mrs. Castor cautioned, and tell me all about it. Well, there's nothing to tell, Mom. I just did what you always do, except, oh, they had this perfectly heavenly self-sealed cellulum we read about, so I used that instead of the standard wrap. Really, I think it's worth the extra twist. She looked up a little anxiously, questioningly, but her mother was nodding complete approval. You were right, dear, she agreed. We ought to try it anyhow, but I want you to start at the beginning and tell me just exactly what you did. Everything, she finished with hungry relish. It had been a long time since she herself had experienced the thrills of training. Leslie settled down and ran her fingers through her hair. Loosening it, she punched a row of keys on the table unit, and the latest popular song came on to provide background for the story. 
Well, I took the servo car at the door and used main ramp as far as store town. Then I navigated to supply and... Leslie, her mother was shocked. Aren't you ever going to learn to use the automatics? You know you're too old to navigo now. No lady navigos herself. A blush spread over the girl's face. Well, I like to, she said defiantly, and then added, But I won't, I guess, if I have to stop to get my license. Anyhow, when I checked in the permit alloy slot, I got the proper outline stamp. She pointed to the deeply indented ring around the seal on the permit and keyed down my unit and personal codes. Then the automatic took me to Baker. There wasn't much of a line. I didn't have to wait more than half an hour. Well, when I finally got there, the woman before me had left. The whole thing jammed up. So I signaled repair and had to wait two more minutes for self-service to fix it up. Mrs. Castor was nodding. So far, so good. I set its contents first, just the way you told me. All eight keys, to be sure, we had it just the way Dad wants it to be. Then I punched for size and shape. I know texture takes care of itself, but I figured I'd play it safe and... A tiny chime announced the opening of the servo slot and the shining package Leslie had deposited in the x-ray inspected chute downstairs slid onto a pre-storage rack. The girl jumped up in excitement, but her mother put a restraining grip on her arm. Sit down, dear, Mrs. Castor said primly, and finish telling me first. Well... Leslie kept talking, but her eyes never left the glowing bundle. That was when I noticed they had cell aluminum installed and set for serve size and then wrap. It was really tricky, and I have a four-way key twist on the wrap, and by that time she was out of the chair and had the package safe in her hands. It's something, Mom, really, she insisted. Look! She peeled off a thin ribbon of aluminum, carefully removing it only from the upper half of the slice she wanted to expose, then pressed down and let the stiff bottom part propel the piece into her hand. While the aluminum ribbon released wrapped itself back into place in the immediate reaction to the leverage, she handed it to her mother, beaming with pride, and Mrs. Castor took it from her, with her expression changing slowly from one of maternal joy and affection to the horrified stare of the betrayed pendant. Leslie, she gasped and sank into her chair, almost, but not quite too exasperated for words. Leslie, I'm ashamed to admit my daughter could do a thing like that. The girl blanched, uncomprehending, and poked out a cautious finger to find out what was wrong with the slice of bread her mother held. Leslie, Mrs. Castor finally managed to say, you had this smooth sliced instead of rough cut. 
What do you think your father's going to say? The way he likes homemade style. Leslie Castor, she wailed. You'll never be a decent housekeeper. I can feel it in my bones. Never. This is Book Symbols with Ray Guns, a show highlighting science fiction by female authors on 91.9 KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. That was Woman's Work is Never Done by Judith Merrill, which was first published in Future Combined with Science Fiction Stories, March 1951. In the background, you heard Arnie Nordheim's composition, Epitapho. Epitaphio. Uh, next, after it finishes, I'll put on Ignition by Tom DeSavelt. So, I thought I'd talk a little bit about the contents of the stories today. As you can see from Women's Work is Never Done, Judith Merrill writes about women and their experience in the future. Some of the stories are a little trivial, but they speak to the woman's experience. Uh, recently, I've been reading The Beauty Myth by Naomi Wolf, and she speaks about how no matter how many rights women get, society controls women through unrealistic expectations. And Merrill sees here that women's role will be the same no matter how much technology changes. And this was written in 1951, so you picture the 1950s housewife, and she's like, well, the 1950s housewife will potentially still be a thing in our flashy future. So, Meryl, though, talks about women and their experiences, but also talks about more positive aspects. Uh, in multiple short stories, women are able to handle space better than men. It was described here today in The Lonely, where the ship was completely crewed by women. Uh, in another story... Stormy weather, women are portrayed as more psychologically stable than men and therefore better suited for isolated jobs in space. Uh, skimming many of her stories for this show, I found a plethora of female protagonists. She did receive criti some critical backlash against her stories about women in the future. Uh, one said... Too often, Meryl does her sex no service by concentrating ad nauseum on the minuta of caring for small children. This may be the first appearance of a kitchen sink science fiction, but it falls short of being entertainment. Uh, historian Eric Leif Devon responded to this critique with, To feel how sexist this dismissal is, let us imagine the critics' attitude sort towards such themes if the gender roles were reversed, in which James Tiptree Jr., also known as Alice Sheldon, imagined, uh, uh, Tiptree said, Consider, if men alone had always raised infants, how monumental, how privileged a task it would be. We would have tons of conceptual literature on infant-father interaction, technical journals, research establishments devoted to it, a huge esoteric vocabulary. But because women do it, it is invisible and embarrassing, or as the critic described earlier, trivial and boring. 
So, on that note, <laughs> we run into this issue throughout women's literature where the female experience is diminished and the men's experience is what we, we look to and find interesting. And, you know, you can see it with the fact that, you know, a lot of things that are very specific to women, like birth control and um, feminine hygiene products, haven't really changed. And there isn't much, much research devoted to it, while we have Viagra and it's free and covered by your health insurance. So anything that's men's related is seen as more worthwhile. Anyway, this show has been Bucks and Blondes with Ray Guns, highlighting science fiction by female authors on KCSB FM in Santa Barbara. I'm Hannah Wolf. Uh, tune in next week at 7 p.m. for more science fiction stories, but make sure to stay on the air for our next uh, DJ and listen to music to play in the dark. One last note, as we will finish up this evening with the song Tape Recorder, 1963 Industrial Noise slash Experimental Music by Lejaren Heller. So, here you go. (laughs) 